Uh, scripture today is Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O Lord, O God, O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it, and you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good, to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, to, be God. to God. You may be seated. Thanks, Thanks Stephen. Uh, well, good morning, Christ City. It's good to see all of you here. We've been off on vacation for a few weeks, uh, so thank you for indulging our absence and uh, supporting us, uh, supporting me as, as a pastor here. I'm just so grateful to be able to serve you. I'm also grateful to be able to uh, go away and get some refreshment with my family. And that also means I'm so grateful to come back. It's just a joy to be able to, to return uh, to our church family and to worship together with all of you. So uh, it's a blessing to be here. Um, would you turn now to the Lord with me as we uh, turn to the Word of God and ask Him for the help that we so desperately need? Now, Father, we come to you this morning and, uh, God, we need your help. We need your forgiveness and your grace, the, the mercy and the, and the forgiveness and the healing that, that David cries out for. Um, Lord, we need even your Holy Spirit to, uh, to lead us to a place of conviction where we really even see our sin for what it is. God, we're dependent upon you um, in incredible ways, ways that we hardly can even comprehend. And yet, 
And yet we know that in your word, you are revealing yourself as good. That you are a father who cares for us. Lord, you are a God who receives us in our humility and our contrition as we come to you repentant, brokenhearted and just longing to be made whole. So God, this morning, would you help us? Would you um, affirm to us the way you welcome us to yourself? Would you make us new as we turn to hope uh, in Jesus Christ and repentance from our own sin? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in the story of the Bible, there is probably no king more famous than King Jesus. The next to King Jesus is probably no king more famous than King David. King David, of course, was uh, the boy king who, uh, before he was king, kills Goliath, the king who God said was a man after his own heart, the one who wrote so many psalms in the Bible, including this psalm that we read uh, this morning, the one who defeated Israel's, uh, Israel's enemies and, and brings this wonderful time of peace for the people of Israel under the rule of God. And if you only read the first half of King David's story in 1 Samuel in the Old Testament in the Bible, you would think that Man, David's the hero of this book. David's the hero of this story. That is, if you stopped reading there. Because if you continue in 2 Samuel, everything hits the fan. And David falls into this awful sin and his life just spirals further and further out of control. And the story goes like this. Story goes in, in 2 Samuel that one fine season for war, as was the custom of ancient kings, David's armies went out to war and 50-something-year-old David stayed home. Maybe he was a little tired. Maybe he thought it's time to reap the rewards of his labors finally. Uh, for whatever reason, he stays home. And as Leonard Cohen made famous, David saw her bathing on the roof. A woman named Bathsheba. A woman who was another man's wife. And not only that, but then David uses his authority and power as king and he sends out his servants to take Bathsheba and to bring her to himself. And she gets pregnant. And David now is entangled in the mess of his sin and he's in this place where he's trying to clean up what he's done. So first, what does he do? Well, first he invites Bathsheba's husband Uriah home from war. As you know, Uriah... You're in need of a vacation. Why don't you come back? War is tough. You know, you got a lovely wife. I'm sure things will, will go well for you. But Uriah is such a righteous and loyal fellow and a loyal soldier. He's like, you know, I, I won't be comforted by going to my wife. I can't do that. My, my brothers in arms, they're on the front lines. How could I just go and, and be comforted? I, I'm not going to do that. So David, frustrated, I think a little bit desperate at this point, goes a little further and he writes a letter to Joab, the commander of his army. And he says, you know, Joab, Uriah's going to go back to the fighting. What you're going to do is this. You're going to put Uriah in the toughest fighting. And when it, the battle is at its hottest, you're going to withdraw the troops from Uriah. You're going to fall back. And just like David planned, Uriah is killed. And David carries on with his life. He marries Bathsheba. He has a son. And he thinks all is well. All is hidden. 
But the very last line of 2 Samuel 11 reminds the reader of the Bible that there is a God of justice who sees all and knows all, to whom all must give account. In that last verse in 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven, we read this very simply, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. God sends the prophet Nathan to David. And David, I think at this point, is feeling pretty good about his situation. So he welcomes David. And oh, David, uh, Nathan, it's nice to see you. Welcome in. I'm glad that you are here. And Nathan starts to talk to David and, and comes at it sideways and starts to tell this story in 2 Samuel 12 that goes like this. Nathan says to the king, Here, O king, I have a story for you. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to the man, sorry, Nathan said to David, David, you are the man. And thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. And I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. You see, Christ City Psalm 51 comes the, to the back end of this story. This story is the reason for David writing Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is about awful, enormous sin and the crushing weight of guilt when it all comes crashing down and the recognition of what you've done has landed on you. But it's the weight of guilt and David's search for forgiveness and for healing that makes this psalm so relatable to each of us here. Because reality is, I think, and you guys can affirm or deny this, that even if we haven't done exactly what David has done, we know what it's like. We know what it's like to, to do something in the heat of our anger or our lust or our greed that we deeply regret. We know what it's like to, to make a bold effort at taking the sin that we've done and trying to hide it. 
trying to, trying to deal with it and, and keep it out of the sight of the people around us. We know what it's like to lie awake at night that wishing that we hadn't done what we've done and wishing that maybe somehow it could be made right. Well, Christ City, what I want you to know right off the bat is that in Psalm 51, there is hope for you and I in our sin. And there's hope not because of a man named David. There's hope because David's sin puts a spotlight on a God named Yahweh, a God who's revealed himself in Jesus Christ, who is great in his mercy and his compassion and his forgiveness. So if you're struggling this morning with your own sin, this psalm has some words of instruction for you, for all of us. We can look to it as an example and as a model, I think, for our own situations and our own guilt and our own sin. And it says four things to us, I think, that we need to heed this morning. Well, four points. Point one, turn to God in our sin. Point two, confess your sins. Point three, ask God for healing. And point four, praise him and share what he has done with others. So let's start with point one, turn to God in verses one to two as we unpack what David has written in Psalm 51. David begins with these words. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your Abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You know, I think that that David's words in these first two verses are a bit unusual for us in our own culture. Because today we do have feelings of guilt and we do struggle with things that we've done, but we're not instructed to turn to God in our guilt. We're instructed to do something else, aren't we? We're instructed to turn to ourselves, to learn to forgive ourselves. To learn to to manage our feelings of guilt by recognizing, you know, I'm not that much worse than the other people around me. We're, We're taught and instructed that, well, one thing you can do to deal with your guilt is to begin to make amends. Go and apologize and see what you can do uh, to make things right. We're essentially taught, I think, do what you can to minimize the problem of guilt and then start to work on it yourself. And that, that's what you can do to get rid of feelings of guilt. The Bible is different. And the Bible and the story of David is a testimony that when we try to manage our guilt that way and do it by ourselves, we actually just make our guilt and our sin and the problem worse. So Heather and I have been watching this, uh, well, we watched part of this, I'll tell you the story. We watched part of this episode. We had to turn it off because it was so frustrating. This show called Man vs. Bee. Has anyone watched that at all? With Mr. With the Mr. Bean character. I can't remember the actor's name. But the, the premise is essentially that the, the person we know as Mr. Bean is now becoming a house sitter for the rich and famous. And it's like this super expensive home and everything in it is priceless. Uh, and uh, over the series of events, you know, the bee gets into the home and he starts to try to chase the bee and he breaks a priceless object and tries to put it back together. And everything that he does, predictably, makes things infinitely worse. It was so bad. Heather and I were so stressed out watching it, we turned it off. Right? We, we can't watch this show. <laughs> like it's, it's too painful. It's too painful. But I think that we're all like this, aren't we, in our sin? We try to to deal with the problem of sin, underestimating our ability 
to handle it and overestimating or underestimating what we've done and overestimating our ability to handle it. And it just makes things worse. For David, that moment came when suddenly he realizes, oh, this is way beyond me. But that moment came, and this is really important, not when he just sat down and had a quiet moment to think for himself. That moment came when he was confronted with the word of God to the prophet Nathan. It was the word of God. It was the authority of God's word speaking into his situation that brought him to his senses. It wasn't his emotions. That's really important. We talk about in our culture a lot about feelings of guilt, right? We're actually not dealing with guilt. We're dealing with feelings of guilt, right? But the thing is, your feelings of guilt can be uh, instructed, can be cultivated by your culture, by your habits, by looking around at what's going on in the world around you. Your feelings can betray you. David doesn't deal with feelings of guilt. He is confronted with the word of God and deals with the reality of guilt. And when David finally sees his guilt in light of the word of God, he stops trying to fix the problem because he realizes he can't. This is beyond him. So instead he prays. He turns to God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me of my sin. David turns to God and he asks God for for deep cleansing, both externally, but also internally. Externally, in terms of, of his objective guilt, he says, God, please blot out my transgressions. And to ask God to blot out Your transgressions means to ask God not to remember your sin anymore. Isn't that incredible? He's asking the infinite God who knows all things, please don't remember my sin anymore. Don't call it to mind when you look at at me. And in the future, don't look back on my sin and determine what you'll do in my life based on what I did. Blot it out. Christ said, wouldn't it be good to be forgiven like that? I think we struggle to believe that God forgives like this, don't we? Right? We all have long memories of the things that we've done, especially the things that we feel a lot of guilt over. And we don't really believe that God can blot out our iniquities. We think that God is the kind of God who has a long list of what we've done and and whenever we screw something up, he loves to open that list. He loves to count it against us. But that's not who God is. It's not true. When you come to God in repentance and faith, his forgiveness is complete. He blots out your transgressions. And for those of us who trust in Jesus Christ, the confidence that God blots out transgressions isn't less than David's. It's greater than David's. Because we know that Jesus has finally come and God has provided once and for all, completely for the cleansing of our sins. The blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse us from all of our sin. The punishment for sin is finished. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, David asked for outward cleansing from the guilt of his sin. Blot out my transgressions. But David asked for more than that as well. He also asked for inward cleansing from his guilt and from his shame. He prays, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Isn't that striking? Maybe I'll show you why that's striking. I think that's striking because today what we're told to do so often is to separate guilt in terms of what we've done from what guilt says about who we are. It's okay to have done bad actions, but we, we must not ever say that, that we are bad. There's a good example of this in, the, the, I think, the modern psychology of our culture. Uh, in a, a kid's book that my kids picked up this last week, um, Heather probably grabbed it thinking that it would be a good book for Arian to practice reading in, and uh, it's, it's an interesting book. Essentially, the story goes like this. There's this little girl, and she's got this bad behavior that's kind of constant and in the classroom over and over and over again, but she's also got a little monster. And the monster is called the snurch. And it's not her who does these bad things. It's actually the snurch that does the bad things. And not only does she have a monster, the snurch, but it's also the other classmates and her friends who have one as well. And she learns to have compassion on herself and on them because they all have the same struggle with bad things. And they externalize the guilt. It doesn't say anything bad about me. But notice that in the Bible, David doesn't externalize what he's done. He doesn't separate his bad actions from his bad self. In the Bible, he recognizes that his behavior has come from a wicked place within him that needs cleansing. In verse 2, he says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. See, the Bible's testimony is that David sinned because David is a sinner. The Bible's testimony is that there is an evil within David that David can't get out. There is an evil within David that only God can deal with. And even though the problem is so much worse than David thought before Nathan visited, bad Nathan, by the way, hey? Like like David was feeling pretty compassionate towards himself. You know, he kind of managed things. And David shows up and just tells David, look, David, you're the guy. This is a a big problem. But at that point, when he starts to contend with his sin, realizing it's worse than he ever thought, it's in that place that he turns to God confident in God's steadfast love and mercy. See, David's appeal to God in these first two verses is based on who God is. Have mercy on me, O God, according to, because of not who I am, but because of who you are, because of your steadfast love, because you are a God of mercy. Christ said, you need to know that the bad news about sin in the Bible is far more serious than you realize. It says far more about the state of your own soul than you'd like it to. But there's really good news in the Bible because the God of the Bible is so much bigger and greater and better than any of the sin that we get ourselves into. And he is committed to love us, to redeem us in our sin, to take what is broken in this world because of our sin and to restore it. 
and to make it new. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is those words of Jesus in uh, the end of Revelation. It says, behold, I am making all things new. Just indicating the character of a God who's, whose love is greater than all of our sin. So I'm wondering this morning, is there anybody here who's ever thought that their sin was too big to bring to God? Is there anybody here who, practically speaking, is like, man, you know, I, I've committed this sin too many times. So I can't go to him anymore. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm too broken. The corruption of my soul is too deep. I, I can't come to God. I want to encourage you, David's confidence to come to God has nothing to do with David's faithfulness to God. It has everything to do with God's faithfulness to a sinner like David. There's this incredible verse in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul shares in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, and it says this, If we are faithless, God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. See, on the basis of God's character and love and mercy, we can always, always, always turn to him in our sin. So in our guilt and in our sin, Psalm 51 teaches us first that we must turn to God. Second, it teaches that we must confess our sins. Uh, look at what David wrote, verses 3 to 6. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Notice first that in David's confession that he fully admits the magnitude of his sin. But he fully admits the magnitude of his sin, not by measuring it against the repercussions that, that his sin has caused in this world. Not by measuring it against those, those emotions that he has, his feelings of personal guilt, recognizing that those can, be, uh, those can be wrong. Those can be false indicators. But by recognizing the magnitude of his sin against God's righteous judgment, recognizing that it is God himself against whom his sin is most ultimately against. Look at verse four. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I mean, if I'm honest, I look at verse four and it just seems wrong, doesn't it? How could that be true? When you look at the story of David's sin, it's hard to think of anybody in the story or even in the kingdom of Israel that David hasn't sinned against. Like, where does he get off? How could he write against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? It just doesn't make sense. Well, the reason that David can say that his sin is against God alone is because ultimately it's true. Ultimately, there is no one that your sin as a human being offends more than the God of the Bible. And there's a reason for this. 
It's because God made you. God created this world that you live in. And literally everything that you have received as a human being is his gift to you. The breath in your lungs, the food that you eat, the sleep that you have, the pleasures that you enjoy, everything in this world is his gift to you. And this God, by the way, is a God who is perfect in ways that we can't comprehend, that our brains don't fathom very well. He's perfect in all that is good, in all that is beautiful, in everything that is true. And his desire for you as his creation is that you would reflect his goodness and his own beauty and his own truth in all of your own actions in this world. And so when you sin, what you've done is that you have taken all that he's given to you and you've turned it back against him. You've offended him in his holiness and his perfections and his good desires for you, his creation. I think there's another reason that we struggle to, to wrap our minds around this. And, it, and it's this, it's because we live in a world today that, that praises moral relativity, right? Where, where morality really is just at the behest of the culture that we live in. You know, if your culture goes this way, great. So goes the morality. You just need to live within that. If it goes this way, great. Go that way. But the God of the Bible is not a God of moral relativity. The God of the Bible is not a God who sees in spectrums of gray, but whose eyes pierce and judge the hearts of human beings with perfect clarity, separating out what is wicked and what is righteous. The Bible says that he pierces with his, his judgment in a way that is so intense it can divide joint from marrow. <laughs> he sees and he judges the thoughts and the intentions of every heart. And he judges those things by his own perfections of what is good and beautiful and true. And to us, in our own culture and in our own sin, this God even declares in Isaiah 5 verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You see, it's only as David stops making excuses for his sin as he's confronted with the word of God, that he comes to realize his guilt, the holiness of the God to whom he is eternally accountable to. And in that place, he writes, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And before this holy and perfect God, David comes in humility and submits to his perfect judgment. He says in verse 4, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment, not in my judgment, not in my opinion, but in yours. Christ City, we need to know, and we need to, we need to learn from Psalm 51 that, that God is so pleased with this sort of humility, this sort of contrition, willingness to admit before God that this is wrong. This sin is horrible sin. A willingness to come before him contrite, willing to do whatever is necessary to turn away from sin and to make things right. A confession that is incredibly humble, but also incredibly vulnerable and honest. 
It's why David would write in verse six, behold, God, you delight in truth, not in general and in the abstract, but truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. See, God's the kind of God that wants a relationship with you. But he knows that you can't have a relationship with him. You can't even have a relationship truly with the people who are around you in this room when you're covering up your sin. When you're living not in truth in the inward being, but in a lie in the inward being. And the reality is that this is what we do, isn't it? If we're honest, every single one of us, we sin and we're just like Adam and Eve in the Bible. And we go, we cover ourselves. We cover ourselves from one another and we cover ourselves, we hide ourselves from God. We come into this room and into relationships and what do we do? We put on a mask. We feel the pressure to keep up appearances. And the last thing that we want, I think, is to truly be humble and exposed to other people. To be exposed before God. And as a result, Intimacy is destroyed, isn't it? Relationships don't increase in intimacy because of that hiddenness. They, they decrease in it. They're broken and they grow in distance. And look again at David's words in verse 6. Behold, God, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Christ said the only way forward to greater intimacy with God but also with greater intimacy here in relationship with one another is through honesty. It's the only way. The only way forward is through great vulnerability. The only way forward is openness as we stop covering up our sin. Look, you might be someone here who's longing for a deep, intimate relationship in a church. But for that to happen, you have to be open. The healing and restoration and intimacy that you long for can only start when we first are vulnerable in our confession to God. And then once having received that forgiveness and love from him, then becoming vulnerable and open with one another. I think David's a good example of this, isn't it? Isn't he? Because he wrote a psalm about his sin. This psalm has been read by millions of people in this world. And he was enabled to write this psalm becoming vulnerable with others only because he was first vulnerable with God. And when he was vulnerable with God first, then he could receive God's forgiveness and God's love and know I am welcomed, even though I'm a sinner, into the arms of a loving father and cherished as a beloved son. And that means I'm secure. I don't need to compete with so-and-so to try and get on top. I can be vulnerable with so-and-so because I'm secure with the God of the universe. And intimacy becomes possible. Restoration of relationship with God first and then with one another. The same is true for us, Christ City. I don't know if you remember, but not that long ago in April, we had this time of testimonies in our baptisms when people were pretty honest 
in the baptism testimonies. But baptisms aren't the only time where we need to be honest as a church with one another. That's only part of the time of our lives of Christians where we can share the testimony that God is a good and gracious God who's at work in my life in real time, forgiving me in the mess of my sin that I am currently in and helping me in the mess of my problems right now when I'm a total failure. Look, the glory's not about me, man. Like, I'm a wreck. It's all about Jesus and his goodness and his kindness to me. Did you know that the early church, the ancient church, at their baptisms, they used to get together and they used to confess every sin that they could remember together, <laughs> right? So they come forward for baptism. Can you imagine this? All of us coming forward. Hi, I'm Brant. Uh, well, it started with, as far as I can think back, uh, when I was 10, and then going through these instances of just unpacking the crap in my life. And all of you guys get to see it. And it wasn't done because of some empty, pious religiosity. It was done as a way of magnifying the grace of a holy and a loving God who forgives sinners. There's a countercultural honesty that happened in that ancient church. Nobody could come close to the ancient culture. They're all talking about feelings of guilt and how to get rid of it. And nobody had anything on the ancient church. Where is there authenticity like this? Where is there healing for the depths of my broken soul like this? It's only seen in people who are vulnerable and open and who receive the love and the forgiveness of God in their confession, their honesty. Christy, I'm not saying we have to do the same thing the ancient church did, but we do need to grow in this. We do need to grow in honesty with one another. Maybe one way you can grow in honesty is just by becoming baptized on September 11th. I'd love to talk to you if you're interested in that. All right, in Psalm 51, David turns to God, not to himself. Second, he confesses openly and honestly. And third, he asks God for the deep healing and cleansing that only God can give. Look at verses 7 to 12. He says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Oh, Christ City, if you're in your sin, you know that you long for joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You know, God's not just a perfect judge who sees what's wrong in our lives. God is a great healer who can restore you. And David, in this section, he comes to God and he begs and he, he petitions God for the healing that he knows only he can bring. Look at each verse with me. We'll go quickly. In verse 7, David confesses he knows the earthly priests were able to, to sprinkle some lamb's blood on him with this branch of hyssop. But he's like, look, that's not enough. <laughs> God, you got to purge me with hyssop. I got to come to you. You are the one who can do something about the depths of my sin. Nothing else can. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. In verse 8, David knows only God could restore him from his agony and his mourning over sin and bring him joy again. He says, God, let 
me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. And verse 9, in his guilt, he knows only one person can remove the debt of his sin, to hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. In verse 10, in the violation of his humanity that sin is, knowing how broken his sin has made him, he knows that only one healer can renew his soul. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. And in the separation from relationship with God that that he feels so poignantly, the God that that he used to be so intimate with, the relationship of love and joy that he was made for, he cries out to God, restore me back to that relationship. Heal it. I want to know your presence. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David cries out to God for healing. This morning I'm wondering, who is it that you're crying out to healing from? Where is it that you're looking to gain healing in your sin and your guilt? We do a lot of things. We have a lot of coping mechanisms, right? We're good at covering up sin. We're good at just trying to manage it ourselves. But there is this incredible hope in this passage of a God who's able to do what neither you nor anyone else you're turning to can do. He can heal you. He'll welcome you to himself. And on the day when when you finally come to him and are welcomed and restored to the arms of a loving father who can heal you, then like David, you'll praise his name. And you'll share what he's done with everybody you can grab hold of and let sit still for a couple minutes as you tell them on the ways uh, that God has had mercy on you. Look at our last point in verses 13 to 17. David says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. David prays for healing, for forgiveness, for mercy from God for one reason. I guess for two kind of. So that he can instruct other sinners. And so that he can praise God for his grace and for his mercy. Does God do all these things so I can just shout it out to the rooftops about how good and great you are? And again, I think this verse is surprising. How could you say, David, you sinner, forgive me, God, then I'll instruct other sinners. Again, where does he get off? That seems kind of nuts. Like you're the last person, David, that should be instructing sinners. Well, it's because David gets something incredibly true about God and the economy of his grace. He knows that the goodness of God's love and mercy is seen most clearly by the praise and the rejoicing of the sinners who've received it. David knows that the goodness of God's love and mercy is only seen for what it is with all of its clarity in the praise and the rejoicing of the the desperate sinners who've received it for themselves. 
It's when we've received God's mercy and forgiveness in our lives and we shout out his praise, that's when the whole world watches. That's when the angels on high look at the church of Jesus, forgiven and made new, and say, this is a good God. This is a glorious God whose love is beyond anything we could imagine because he forgave them, because he restored them. See, ultimately, God wasn't most glorified by David's victory over Goliath. God was most glorified in David's life by his sin. And the way that in David's sin, he turned to God in confession and repentance. See, this is a sacrifice that God accepts. The one that glorifies him in verses 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifices or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You'll not despise it because he welcomes those people to himself and those are the people that bring him the most glory as they receive his grace. You see, there's a reason for this and it's this. The thing that is most radical about the love of God in the Christian gospel isn't that God so loved the world and sent his son to die for the wicked or to die for the righteous, sorry. It's that God so loved the world and sent his son to die for the repentant wicked. The thing that's most radical about the love of God in the Christian gospel isn't that he searched the universe for those who are good in order to love them and take them into his family, but he searched the universe for those who were evil and admitted their sin before him. The Christian gospel is about a God who in his love doesn't love those who are beautiful already, but loves the contrite, wretched, and ugly who are made beautiful as they receive his love and forgiveness. And this is exactly what we see in Jesus Christ. Because when God became human to finally deal with our sin, to come and save us, he shows us this. In his ministry, Jesus didn't pursue the pious. It's not who he sought out. He didn't look for the people who wore the masks outwardly and put on a good face. He didn't look for the people who felt the pressures of keeping up with the Joneses in their society and couldn't admit their sin. He looks for those who are humble, who are open, and who are vulnerable in their sin. Just look at what Luke wrote in 529 to 32. And Levi made him a great feast, made Jesus a great feast in his house. So there's a big party going on, Jesus is invited. And there is a large company of tax collectors. These are these hated betrayers, the people of Israel. And there were others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes, these are the religious, pious people, they grumbled at Jesus' disciples and they said, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, Christ City, Jesus came for the Davids. He came for those full of egregious, awful sin. 
but publicly repentant. For them, Jesus came not as a lamb to, to sprinkle a little bit of blood on an altar. He came as the son of God, the lamb of God, priceless in his worth to give himself as a sacrifice an atonement for sin that would finally and utterly and eternally cancel our debt of sin, wash us clean from our stain of sin, heal our brokenness, and restore us to God. So Christ City, Psalm 51 in summary, it teaches that your sin is far more serious than you can imagine. But at the same time, it teaches that if we are Willing to come to Jesus Christ, humble, repentant, broken of spirit and contrite, that there is no sin too big for him to forgive. There's no sin too frequently committed for him to forgive. There's no person here too broken and stained by the reality of their sin that he can't restore and make new.